Today is April 5th, 2019, and our special guest today is Michael Lewis, who heads up Free Market Inc. here in Chicago. And of course, we've had some big news today in terms of the employment numbers, the jobs report. And Mike, I want to ask you, were you surprised by the numbers, or do you think that they're just the difference is statistically insignificant? Well, the... This report, maybe more than any report that I can remember, was as close to consensus as as any. Um, it was 196,000 jobs. There was very little in the way of revisions. Um, the consensus was a little bit weaker than that, but I mean, was, this number was a little light on on wages, but not really very much so. Good work week. It was a, a very pedestrian report. It, yeah, For those people thinking we were going into recession, probably very disappointed. Those thought that we were going to be back in the economic boom, probably disappointed. Everybody else is doing just fine. And February's <clears throat> report was revised as well. Very little. Um, slightly. How so. does that happen? People have asked me, and can you explain why the numbers get revised? On a regular basis. This is a payroll survey where they actually survey a large percentage of the number of people who who are on payroll, so a large number of companies. So if they get reports that come in after the first due date, um, those reports will be will affect the next estimate. So there's more complete reports that show up after two. You get the first report after one month. You get the second second estimate after a month later. You get a third estimate. You know, you're getting more and more actual results so that they are able to revise the number and hone in on the, the result. You're not asking me a question, but let me add this, and that is that um, the... Uh, Revisions to these payroll data, which happen annually, based off of claims data, which are 99.9% accurate, um, are remarkably modest. That they, their estimating techniques using a birth-death model are beyond fantastic. Okay. Um, and often there are at least a few voices out there saying, well, it's all births or it's all deaths. And, um, and, and it's really, the number is really not legitimate. And, um, and, and the reality is when we actually get that 99.9% .9 actual count number with a 18 to 24 month lag, it, it is remarkably precise. So it's definitely good enough. Now, another question that I hear very often is, you're saying that these are payroll numbers. What about people who are self-employed? Are they included in they the jobs report? How do they get picked up? They picked up in terms of they're filing um, uh, reports to UI claims so that they will get picked up in this report. There is an alternative report, which is a survey report where a much smaller subset relative to the payroll data um, get surveyed, individual people get surveyed. They're in the survey for a certain number of weeks, they get knocked out, or a certain number of months, they get knocked out, um, and then the new people come in. It's it's a smaller percentage of the total, but it's a different survey. Um, it gives you sort of a second estimate. Um, it's much more volatile because it's a much smaller 
uh, sample than the payroll sample is. What do you think about the ADP report that precedes the jobs report? I commend the ADP people for one specific thing, and that is it's an incredible marketing ploy because there is literally, in my mind, zero value added from the ADP report. Um, and I think that's being kind. It, it, it may actually be a, a drawback to, to reality. Um, but people still seem to look at it monthly. By the way, ADP was looking for a 125,000 or something. Um, it, it once again failed. Um, it'll probably be revamped again as it is every couple of years. And they'll say that this new version is is fantastic. You know, we've gotten rid of the problems and it will fail again. It's a backward looking construct. Um, it, it, it finds answers after we've seen the, the results. Um, I would ignore, uh, I would advise anyone to ignore it completely other than a, a good April Fool's joke. I see. So Mike, how do, at, at Free Market, um, how did you get interested in doing what you do. Can you tell us what your service does? Primarily, I provide economic analysis of the U.S. economy. A lot of uh, the indicate all, all the major indicators, um, as well as analysis of things like monetary and fiscal policy. But uh, to go back further with your question, I've always enjoyed numbers, um, maybe more so than I should. Um, but I just liked the feel of numbers and, and thinking about them and combining sort of the, what I think the future is going to do with the actual numbers that come out. And um, I get pleasure out of that. Um, camp. <laughs> probably a little strange, but... Uh, when you were a little boy, did you dream about becoming an economist, a mathematician, no. or what, what were you thinking then? Uh, chemical engineer, to be honest. But um, I, when I was... Eight, nine, ten years old, I was doing multiplication tables from one to a hundred or even past a hundred and, you know, and then a, a matrix and multiplying all the numbers um, all the way down. And I could do that well. Um, I always could take numbers into my head and, and usually remember them and, 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 and apply to what's going on with the rest of the world and come up with something logical. So that's your kind of fun. It's my kind of fun. Now, um, I know that you're interested in an outlier type of number, by definition, prime numbers. How did you get so interested in prime numbers? Prime numbers are, have a uniqueness to them. Uh, um, and I've always I've been drawn to them. I've, when books come out about prime numbers, I like to look at them. Uh, I think it was Reinemann. Uh, uh, back in I don't know, 19th century, who came up with a theory, uh, an estimating estimating technique. Uh, there's a great book by him um, on how many prime numbers will exist approximately, not exactly, um, between, say, 0 and 15 million um, using uh, uh, his... He actually wasn't a mathematician, but he liked to dabble in in math, and he came up with uh, uh, a very remarkable estimate, estimate of the number of prime numbers that will exist. Um, my kids will tell you that I always celebrate their birthdays um, 
more substantially when they are prime birthdays. So um, I, I, you know, I, I'm hoping to live into to at least 120 because there's a lot of prime numbers between uh, 110 and 120. There's a, also a lot between uh, uh, zero and 10. So there's certain areas where you get more prime numbers. It's kind of others. a bell curve. Then. Yeah, well, this is a, <laughs> an odd one, yes. So, so then you went off to MIT. I did. And what did you study there? It's not surprising you went to I MIT. I, uh, <laughs> I've been, um, other schools didn't let me in, so I had to go to I had to go somewhere. So I started off in chemical engineering. Um, there was a midterm in my freshman year where there was 200 possible. Class average was 30, um, and I decided I just didn't want to do this anymore. Didn't enjoy it. I I shifted to political science. Um, I enjoyed writing, but it wasn't precise enough for me, and I landed in economics as a third option. And I, then I graduated at MIT in three years and, um, and, and eventually went on to graduate school after that. So while you were there, there were a lot of famous economics professors at sure. MIT, and who were your favorites and who inspired you? Um, Probably one that isn't uh, on the top of most people's list was was Peter Temin, who did work on monetary policy. He also helped me find my first job. Um, I really enjoyed uh, his work. I also enjoyed uh, Robert Solo, who taught macro, um, who also got a Nobel Prize afterwards, after uh, later in his life. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I knew Sam, I saw Samuelson in the halls, but really had no contact with him. I saw Peter Diamond, uh, and uh, uh, he eventually got a Nobel Prize also. Uh, uh, I, Jim Annable, who ended up being chief economist at First Chicago, and a few other names that got called after that, uh, taught labor class, and uh, um, I enjoyed his, his work. Um, that's pretty much the summary. The summary. So then you went to graduate school too. And I did. did you do a thesis on a I've never asked you what your thesis was on. I never got to a thesis, so it's a, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I finished my coursework, finished my exams. I was eligible to write a dissertation. Um, I just never really got started. Um, I thought about it even in young adulthood. There is a limit at, at UCLA where I went to um, how long before you can actually uh, uh, complete it or start it. Um, and I, I have gone past that date, so it, uh, it apparently will not happen. So you were more interested in, it sounds like, the real world of economics. I did some consulting work while I was in graduate school. Um, I knew I wanted to start a company. Uh, I worked, I came back to Chicago after graduate work. I got a master's, um, sort of a consolation prize, uh, parting gift. Uh, and and I then uh, worked for Steinrow and Farnham, which was an investment manager, uh, in uh, the mid mid seventies, late seventies, um, I stayed there for over a few years, and um, and then I started my own business in kind of nineteen eighty two, right around there. Pretty early days, very was, early was, days. I'm glad it was not then and not 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 now. So, do you think it was easier to have started an economic consulting business? 
massively then. easier. Mm-hmm. And what has changed since then? Uh, my end use market is discretionary money managers for the for ninety five percent of my revenue, um, and, and they were a growing entity at that time. So they were looking for research services. Um, that has changed radically, and and certainly in the last 20 years, massively in the last 10 years. So do you think robo-investing and that sort of thing has taken away the human judgment that requires this kind of information? And and will there be a pendulum swing back after the next disaster? There may be some pendulum swing back. It, It also may have gotten the amount of discretionary emphasis may have been too high to at some point along the line. So, um, but I would expect some swing back, but I'm not sure it'll be ever as good as it was in, say, the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Well, one thing that doesn't seem to have diminished at all is the interest in Fed, watching the Fed. And you're definitely a Fed watcher and have seen patterns over time. Can you, how do you look at what the announcements are? What's your process for you to make up your, to make your forecast up? How do you do that? The only person that really matters is the chairman. Um, the rest of it's minimal, of, has minimal value. Um, and we've always, it's always been an organization that is, has a leader that takes us. I mean, certainly in my lifespan as a, as a consultant, um, uh, Paul Volcker, Alan Greenspan, uh, Ben Bernanke, uh, Janet Yellen, um, and now Jay Powell. Um, it, it's always been what that leader wants to go. And, and while they've been fought back a little bit, and there may be some compromise within the committee if they stand alone, really far alone, it, what the chairman wants, the chairman will get. Um, and I've never seen an instance really, or very many instances where that hasn't been the case. So what do you feel about Jay Powell as a chairman and the job he's doing? Um, I'd probably put Volcker number one out of the list I went, if you want to go mm-hmm. back one further, sure. include Burns in this, this grouping. Uh, and I'd put Powell as a second. I mean, I, wow. I, think, I think Bernanke was scared understandably scared. I think he certainly had a lot of knowledge that was useful um, to try to fight things that were going on, but I don't think he was a great leader. Um, I think Yellen was also overwhelmed by the position, Um, so neither of them are on my favorites list. I thought Greenspan was just fine and for the first six to ten years um, became very full of himself um, in the second part of his term, and uh, um, it was unfortunate, and I think he uh, uh, started us down a path that was unhealthy, too much, too much, so, too much lower rates. So there's a lot of brouhaha about the two new appointees to the Fed, but what it's, it's see if I can imagine what you would say, it would be that it doesn't matter who else doesn't is matter on. Doesn't matter, Iota. Also, I would argue that 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 uh, Larry Kudlow and and Donald Trump know that, first of all, Stephen Moore probably has a minimal chance of being approved. There are very few Democrats. I don't think there are any that will vote for him. Um, they have to hold pretty much the entire Republican slate to get an approval. Um, 
And there are a number of Republicans who don't like the organization that Stephen Moore was involved with. Right. And he wrote very critical comments about them. I'm certain that at least a handful of them are going to vote against him, which I'm not even sure he'll make it out of committee. So I think Moore was nominated with the full knowledge that he would not make it on the committee to send a message to Powell. I see. Cut interest rates. Make them lower. 50 so, basis points. Well, do it tomorrow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do it you know, Do it yesterday. Um, so I think, you know, that was just uh, a positioning by, by the Trump administration. I think in some ways Kane is, I don't know if Kane has any chance. He hasn't really been vetted at all. Um, and I'm not sure what he has business he belongs on the board. Um, but, yeah, you can give Trump credit, by the way, for one thing is he has tried to keep the Fed board pretty full up. And we haven't before under Obama. Obama didn't seem to have any interest in the Fed. Mm-hmm. He left the board often with a huge number of vacancies. There, right. were, there were a couple instances where there was not enough people or they came close to not having a quorum because he just didn't name people. It wasn't the Republicans that weren't voting for those people. They were willing to vote for certainly a, a range of candidates that would have been acceptable to Obama, but he just never nominated them. Um, Trump, on the other hand, has at least thrown names out there. You know, it's fascinating that he he didn't choose Yellen, which I actually told clients. I thought Yellen was the more logical choice for him. I remember uh, you saying that. And, and it came close. I think it came down to the two of them. But and and clearly, if he wanted lower interest rates, he would have been much better off uh, uh, nominating uh, uh, Yellen to another term. But you know, he, for reasons I don't, I, I don't really understand, the, his early position fills and his chairmanship position fill were really odd in the sense that they, you know, wouldn't have been the way I would have thought he would have gone. So do you think that uh, Powell, because of the Trump administration's stand on interest rates, do you think, and the market reaction in December, do you think he overreacted by what he said? We're not going to be data-driven, we're just not going to... He said instead we're not going to raise rates. Do you think it was premature for him to say that? I don't know what they knew. Um, I'm not sure we know exactly what information was available. I think they were data-driven. I think they had some idea that the retail sales data that came out for December, I'm going to sneeze in a second, um, <laughs> um, that, that that was coming out and that they needed to be less aggressive. I'm not sure that their December comments weren't over-interpreted as being as they weren't as hawkish maybe as they intended them to be but uh, it'll be an interesting point in history if we get to read a book why you know what changed in a very short period of time Um, but um, I I still think they are data-driven they're always going to be data-driven but this one was an interesting time uh, and I'm not 100% sure what happened so we'll find out, I we'll guess. We'll find out eventually. We yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they must think, the Fed must think there's no inflation rearing its ugly head around the corner. What do you think about that? And where would you look to find that? Well, first of all, year over year PC inflation, which I don't know why we've chosen that indicator other than that it, it happens to be the lowest of 5 million indicators on measuring inflation. But it did get up to 2% year over year. 
and and it's now dipped down to 1.8. It's not like we're not real real close to target. Right. I admit to anyone that they haven't gone up to it hasn't gone up to three or two and a half, whatever. But it hasn't gone down to one and a half. It's been close to two percent now for a fairly long time. I think it will move back up to two percent again. I wouldn't be surprised if it moved a little over two percent. It, it, this. It's, if we're arguing that there hasn't been a massive acceleration in inflation, that's true. If we're arguing that there's no inflation, that's not true. It's one and three quarters, it's 2%, whatever you want to say. So I find some of the media's coverage to be a little out of place and, and really not to, uh, on point. And what do you see in, in uh, wages in terms of inflation? Wages are on their way up. They will continue to rise regardless of the light number today. By sometime the end of this year, we'll be recording a year-over-year number that is, if it's not four, it'll be just under four. We're slightly over three right now. So I have, I'm confident we'll get there uh, as long as the economy remains solid, which I think it will be. So why aren't wages higher than they are? Do you find, do you think that they're in line with what you would expect? But you've often here, and now with new minimum wage laws going in, and potentially in our own state, in Illinois and in Chicago, do you think this will have an effect or not? I can't say that, yeah, would I have thought they would have gone up sooner? Yeah. But it's, if you look at the last time they accelerated, like 20 years ago, um, it comes on suddenly and it comes on, sometimes comes on very big. So, uh, I, you know, I, I expect to see further increases. Um, maybe it'll go up to five eventually. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. But that's not necessarily, you know, will that translate into higher prices, higher PC? Probably some, but I don't know. It won't translate, all of it won't translate in. And, you know, moving on to trade as well, U.S.-China trade issues, how do you see that impacting? The 10% tariff doesn't seem to have had a huge impact, or do you see that in some place? The last two quarters have seen some impact from trade tariffs. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they can put those aside, uh, and they seem likely to do so, that'll be a, a real good positive picking up in later in the spring and certainly in the summer. What I'm hearing is that they might keep those 10% tariffs in place for quite some time um, as compliance issues are worked out, which could take years. So that could stay there. But also I've heard that um, the Chinese exporters really ate the difference in price there. And they then also, uh, another beneficiary, Vietnam, for example, Cambodia, other places, so the U.S. consumer didn't really see um, an increase in price. Do you think that's accurate? That often is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not. I think there is some truth in that. I think if it went to 25 percent, they wouldn't be able to no, to do not. that, and then we would see that. But it seems unlikely that we're going to get there now. Although the headlines about U.S.-China trade negotiations change by the hour in terms of what's happening, so hard to know, but still could have uh, an impact. What do you think about, I, from a U.S. perspective, what do you think about the weakness in Europe? How could that affect us, Mike? Its potential growth wasn't very high to begin with. Um, there's clearly been some weakening 
throughout the region, um, some of it related to to Brexit and 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 the close relationship between Europe and and the UK um, and the issues that have arisen there. Um, but uh, I don't, yeah, you know, I think it was Greenspan who called them a a great museum, but uh, or to uh, badly paraphrase, but uh, something in that ballpark. Um, I'm not. I don't think they're going to go into a deep recession, um, and I would expect that they'll see somewhat better growth going forward, but nothing impressive, you know, 1%. And then the other component of inflation, of course, is energy, energy prices, oil prices. Is there a scenario where you could see a real uptick in oil prices this year? We're just Geopolitical, yeah, it's, it's been going on. Do you think that's going to continue, or how, yeah? I don't know. Uh, I think we'll stay in this ballpark. I wouldn't expect to go up much higher than this. Yeah, where are we today? Um, over 60. Over uh, 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, depending on which measure. We'll see where we are at the end of the year. We will. That. Yeah. So uh, is there anything about the U.S. economy that you're watching particularly, something that you see that's anomalous? Productivity? Is there anything that you just are thinking, hmm, I don't know how to fit this into the pattern because you're all about numbers and patterns, Mike. What do you see on the horizon that the rest of us don't see? I think the U.S. economy is healthy. Um, I'm not willing to sell it. You know, there's been a lot of pessimism after the February jobs number was so weak. Um, A lot of people talked about either a major slowdown or a recession. I just don't see those ingredients there. I mean, what, one of the big things that happened in the fourth quarter and the first quarter is that income growth remained really healthy because we're getting pretty good job growth, pretty good wage growth, hours worked or firm. Um, and, and so what we've seen is consumers saving more money. Um, but that won't persist forever. We won't stay at a 75 or 8% savings rate. I think we'll come back down. By doing so, we will get more spending. Um, as people get more comfortable with the, with the circumstances, um, you know, tax uh, refunds um, came much later this cycle because of uh, the government being shut down, um, and so you're going to get a positive flavor from that. You've touched upon an ingredient that you know the Fed would love to know, I would love to know, you would love to know. Um, productivity has picked up some, um, you know. It, Will it pick up more or at least sustain this growth rate? I would argue I would expect to at least hold this kind of modest productivity growth we have in the coming quarters, and, and I hope that's the case, and that'll create more growth. Two other critical sectors I'd like to ask you about, housing and autos. What are your views on housing starts and, and prices? Is that something that's so regional that it's hard to come to a conclusion? Um, let me take autos first. Uh, autos are um, in a secular decline. I mean, the Ubers and the Lyfts and, 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 and the other uh, competitors are taking away from people buying new cars. You know, a lot of, an increasing number of people are living without new cars. Or, and the other thing that's going on is cars are lasting forever. Um, so buying new cars is not high on people's list. Uh, you know, I own a 2005 
uh, vehicle, and I'm not unusual. Do you need to replace it? Probably not. No. Right? Mm-hmm. And the question is, you know, after I get tired of the repair bills, does the, do I want to have a car at all? I can live without one. It's not that, that difficult. So that's one of the problems. Uh, the other side is I, I expected housing starts housing activity to improve. To a point, it has improved. It seemed to stall out in 2018 to some degree. I still think it will improve. I mean, these the respite and in, 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 in Fed tightening and, and the, the drop down in, in long rates and mortgage rates, I think will help start that. But um, I do see more housing activity, more housing starts going forward. Um, I don't think we're peaking out at 1.2. I think we'll peak out something closer to a million and a half. Um, so there's still some decent growth to be had in this year and next year. Well, the first-time buyers are saddled with a lot of student debt. Do you think that's weighing on the housing market? If that were suddenly erased, what would that do? Um, I hope we don't do that. Um, It just doesn't... I mean, you take on debt, you pay it off. Uh, uh, But I'm not... You know, if you look at the, the housing statistics, existing home sales, which breaks into first-time buyers, et cetera, there's an incre- increase in the number of first-time buyers out there. So there's... Even in the face of this. In the face of this. So there's that that's continuing on. There's less less people investing in homes because it hasn't been so spectacular this time with with price hikes. Yeah. It, it, yeah, again, this is going in an area you're not asking me about, but... You know, the Fed, one of the terrible mistakes the Fed made was not watching home prices going up 10% a year between 95 and 2005, and, and just ignoring that. And, and uh, you know, and, and in some sense, they've got to be careful of not creating too much excessive loan growth. Uh, maybe it's, it's housing, maybe whatever it is. They need to be careful about that in the upcoming, in 2019-2020. We'll see if they are. Mike, you've talked about individual indicators. Given all that you see, what is your broad view of the U.S. economy and the future of the U.S. US economy? What's the overview? We probably have a forecast that's in the upper 5% of of optimism. Um, We see growth... Averaging, you know, we we ran around three percent last year on a year-over-year basis, and we think we'll be around two and a half. Not that much of a slowdown from the previous year. You won't have as much going for you because the tax cut is played out at, at least partly, if if not mostly. Um, there's still some benefits to be had, but um, we're pretty optimistic that the U.S. economy will continue to do pretty well. What could be some of the upside surprises that you could imagine that would push that forward? Any downside surprises that you're on uh, the lookout for? I see no downside surprises. Um, Very optimistic. Don't have me back for a second time. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I see I'm, upside. I'm sorry, <laughs> that won't work. <laughs> but I see upside surprises in the consumer, particularly. Consumption's mm-hmm. been okay. Uh, but it, you know, it, you've seen what you've seen is a very sizable rise in the savings rate, um, which I think will go back 
down somewhat at least, if not significantly, and, and real incomes will remain healthy, i.e. that's a prescription for better than expected consumption growth in, in the rest of the quarters of 2019. Is there a demographic aspect to that? As people get older, they'll spend down their savings. We've got a baby boomer tsunami coming. Do you think that will have an effect or not Not in the immediate future? Demographics are powerful things. Um, they play almost no role in over a year, two, or three. My, my horizon is typically a year, two, or three, so I'm, I'm not really working them into my forecast to any great degree. So, Mike, where are you seeing, where, where are you investing? Where do you think the opportunities are in well, this kind of environment? I generally invest broadly, but one thing I did invest in, which has worked out okay so far, again, don't ask me back, um, <laughs> and that is um, I shorted Fed Fund Futures in January of 2020. In other words, I look there, there's an expectation of almost a, was an expectation of almost one full federal funds cut in over the next 10 months. And I just did not, certainly with my forecast of, of solid growth, stable inflation, um, that I did not, yeah, well, it's very conceivable the Fed won't raise rates. I, I make money if the Fed doesn't raise rates. If they happen to throw a rate hike in, I make a lot of money. If they just if they cut rates one time, I break even. If they got to cut them twice, and I just don't think that's going to happen for me to feel much pain. So that's one thing I did. It was at least a little playful, and we'll see how it works out. So oh. far, so good. Well, as I, I think we're on the same page. I I think in my forecast for 2019, I have one Fed hike. And then it. they'll take it back after. We'll see. Okay. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Not sure what would make that happen, but that's what makes a futures market. It does. So you're, would you call yourself, here we are sitting in Chicago, Mike, would you call yourself a Chicago school economist? How do you look at, who are your progenitors in terms of the classical economic theorists? Well, if you go back far enough, I, um, Adam Smith is is my hero. Um, I you know uh, find the wealth of nations as one as in any field you know whether it's philosophy or uh, 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 chemistry or or whatever you want to get into. Adam Smith's writing of the wealth of nations was a hundred a hundred fifty years ahead of its time. Um, it probably took uh, at least a hundred years before Marshall added something new that. Smith didn't really see already, uh, and it was remarkable. I've always been in awe uh, of Smith. Um, I was shaped more by my graduate school work than my undergraduate. I think that's probably true of, of most people. Um, I became friends with and, and, and really enjoyed taking Ed Lemer, who's not a uh, a Nobel Prize winning economist, but has taught me a lot with, wrote a book on specification searches, which combined both data and thinking um, and, and in a way that I had never thought about and, and somebody who I still stay in touch with. Uh, I enjoyed Armin Alshin and Harold Demsetz, who all, Demsetz and Alshin all were at Chicago at one time 
um, and then wanted a little warmer climate. So they sort of formed the University of Chicago Part Two, or um, uh, later on in their lives. And a lot of people have gone to UCLA and taught who are in a classical school. Um, I find it very interesting that Adam Smith, who was at, at that time economics, and until fairly recently, economics was kind of political philosophy. And you're a real quant guy. So I find it very interesting that he's one of your heroes. But we need both, I guess, is the answer to that. Mm -hmm. We need both to, to understand what what's, has happened and what will happen. So, me, Mike, go ahead. You know, if God is right about, as an economist, is right about 60% of the time, and nobody does better than he does. Um, so that, I mean, this is a difficult profession. You, you can, you're taking a lot of information, you're balancing it, digesting it, and then you're spitting something out. And if you get it right a little more than you get it wrong, you're really, really good at this. Um, you can't take the failures too, too seriously, and you can't live with the successes very long because they're not going to last. Um, you know, this is not a game where you're 100% right. This is a game, you know, where you're just, you're hoping to be right more than you're wrong. Um, it's a tough profession. I enjoy it. It's a clean slate every time you every. go out there. So it's more like baseball, nobody bats a thousand. Nobody comes close to a thousand. A thousand, yeah. It seems that kind of game as well. It seems to me that that economists really are great historians. Data by its nature is something that's already happened, no matter how far back you go. But what the public wants, what people hope to get, and what policymakers want is information about the future. And that's very hard mm -hmm. for anybody to do, obviously. Is imperfect. So, so Mike, if um, the White House called you today, President Trump called you today, and, and he said, Larry Kudlow is quitting, and we'd like you to come join us, what would you advise the Trump administration to do, the, the current administration that it's not doing now? Or do you think they're steady as you go? Or what do you think about the, this, as a former political scientist, what do you think about, about that? I had not thought about the question. I, I'm thinking that he's probably not going to call me. Um, yeah, you can, I don't, you know, he's, Trump has surrounded himself with some good people. Um, certainly some of his early nominations to the Fed board were reasonably solid. Um, I think Cudlow was an okay choice. Um, so that, there are some decent people he surrounded himself. I mean, I don't think Reagan was a rocket scientist in in his own thinking, but he did surround himself with a, a lot of really good people, and and I think that served him well and and helped his presidency be a a, a pretty good presidency. So, um, you know, I would encourage him to get polished, uh, uh, good people around him. It's not. I don't think he's going to listen to me. I see. Well, that's too bad. Yes. That's a shame. So, so Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. And um, some of your work is on EconView. You're an EconView expert. But where can people find, where is your website located? Where can people find you for the data-driven analysis that you, you uh, okay. offer? My website is at www. 
I guess I didn't have to say that. Freemarketinc.com. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> so thank you, and we will be asking you to come again. Okay. So thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Michael Lewis with Free Market Inc. <laughs>